This is not your century. This is not your century, where we celebrate the news and the newspapers of centuries gone by. I'm King Kaufman. When we look back on the 1700s, I don't know if you're the kind of person who looks back on the 1700s, but let's say you are. When you and I look back on the 1700s, we probably think of it in a very different way than people did in 1820. At that point, most adults had lived through part of the 1700s, and they really didn't know for sure yet how future eras would look back on their times. So if we were to try to sum up the 20th century from the viewpoint of 2020, I think most of us would talk about things like the world wars, rise and fall of communism, the fight for human rights, the technology, of course. But a couple of hundred years from now, I wonder if the big takeaway from the 20th century is going to be something like, wow, those people set the stage for the planet incinerating. And towards the end of the century, they knew about it. And they pretty much did nothing. June 27, 1997. The Earth Summit Plus Five is over at the United Nations. It was a failure. Five years after the groundbreaking Earth Summit conference in Rio de Janeiro, the UN General Assembly met to take stock of progress that had been made in addressing urgent problems of protecting the environment and achieving sustainable development. For five days, delegates made speech after speech, bemoaning the lack of progress that had been made. They talked about the further decline of the planet's health. They talked about the looming problem of global warming. They worked deep into the last night on a draft statement for a closing declaration. This would be a rousing call to action, a cry to save the planet. Time was starting to run out. At four in the morning, the talks broke down. The countries couldn't agree. The United States and Japan refused to set targets for reducing greenhouse gas emissions. General Assembly President Rosali Ismail had opened the summit by warning that the human race may soon pass the point of no return on environmental destruction. But he wouldn't apologize for the sad outcome of the conference. He said delegates didn't want to sweep their differences under a rug just to issue some statement to put a gloss on something that wasn't there. So what we have got, he said, a bland statement about how they were committed to keep talking, that's all we can get. That tells the story by itself. The 1992 Rio summit had produced the Climate Change Convention. That was a treaty to address and control damage to the environment from greenhouse gases. That agreement was extended by the Kyoto Protocol later in 1997 and by the Paris Agreement in 2016. The Rio summit had ended in a heady mood of optimism, but now, five years later, that mood was gone. There had been some progress. There were new agreements about safe drinking water, and the phasing out of leaded gasoline around the world. But environmentalists said both rich and poor countries seemed to be losing the resolve they'd brought home from Rio. They said some delegates seemed to be actively trying to sabotage any agreement. In terms of the diplomacy, said an official from the National Wildlife Federation, it's the worst breakdown of cooperation that I've ever witnessed. The feel-good part is just falling apart here. You know what? This is getting depressing. Let's skip ahead a year to June 28, 1998, to another conference. It's the 10th annual conference of the International Society for Humor Studies in Bergen, Norway. Now, you might have heard that humor dies under a microscope, 
So you'd think that a bunch of academics getting together to talk about jokes would be, well, a humorless affair. And you'd be right. Everyone here is concerned with taking humor seriously. No, seriously, that's what the conference chairman said. The society includes professors of philosophy, psychology, medicine, religion. They all share an interest in laughter, not because they're a fun bunch, but because humor is one of the most complex activities of the human brain. For instance, a British sociologist named Christy Davies gave a talk about how people all over the world tell jokes that are remarkably similar, even if their cultures are wildly different. For example, every culture has a version of ethnic jokes, and the humor always comes from how stupid the other side is. The Norwegian hosts have been engaged in a joke war with their Swedish neighbors for as long as anyone can remember. I'll tell you a joke from that war. Ready? I'll tell it from Norway's side. Why does it take two Swedes to wash a car? One to hold the sponge and the other to drive the car back and forth. Man, is this thing on? I'm dying up here. Hey, did you hear the one about the incinerating planet? I was talking earlier about people in the past looking back at their past. That's what we get in today's second episode about the dedication of Coit Tower. It's 1933, and it's a day filled with nostalgia for the 1860s. October 8, 1933, a tang of old San Francisco, of the days of high courage and gay adventure, was in the cool salt breeze atop Telegraph Hill yesterday. I'm reading from the San Francisco Chronicle. I'll get to the point in a second, but I just want to point out how even in 1933 they were talking about the good old golden days of San Francisco. Old San Francisco, back when it was really the old San Francisco. They've been talking like that since way before you moved here. Back to our story. The tang of old San Francisco was in the cool salt breeze atop Telegraph Hill yesterday when a little group of old-timers gathered with thousands of the new generation to dedicate the magnificent new Lily Hitchcock Coit Memorial Tower. The structure was built with funds left by Mrs. Coit, Belle of the 60s, and heroine of the old volunteer fire department. Can you imagine being in San Francisco and the old people are talking about the great old days of the 60s and they're talking about the 1860s? Well, the old guys that day were retired members of the San Francisco Fire Department. Old hearts beat faster under red shirts of the veterans, the Chronicle reported. Eyes glistened and shoulders straightened when George Barron, who represented them, told the throng... Organization of the Volunteer Fire Department gave this city the first real gentleman's club of its history. Bankers, butchers, doctors, clerks, lawyers, grocery men, laborers met in the common purpose of preserving the city and remained together as comrades and friends. In those stern pioneering days, a man was a man and a fireman. In the spirit of those days, in the spirit of Lily Hitchcock Coit, we meet to honor her. I gotta be honest, I didn't really follow the logic there. It sounded like he was honoring the firemen, not Mrs. Coit. But I guess Mrs. Coit would have liked that. 
She was born Lily Hitchcock in West Point, New York in 1843, the daughter of an army doctor. The family moved west in 1851. The story goes that in 1858, as a 15-year-old tomboy, she was out walking on Telegraph Hill when she saw Knickerbocker Engine Number 5 struggling up the hill trying to get to a fire. She jumped in to help push the engine up the hill and called for others to do the same. The firefighters of Engine Number 5 adopted her as their mascot. Firebell Lil. When she was 20, they made her an honorary member of the company, and she rode along with them in parades and even sometimes to fight fires. About that time, she married a man named Howard Coit, who worked at the San Francisco Stock Exchange. They split up in 1880. Lily Hitchcock Coit was fascinated by firefighters for the rest of her life. She worried over them when they were sick. She attended their funerals when they died. And as evidenced by those racing hearts under those red shirts in 1933, they loved her for it. She was considered an eccentric for reasons beyond her love for the fire brigades. She liked to smoke cigars, dress in men's clothing, and frequent the men-only gambling dens of the Barbary Coast. Those were the sorts of things that got women of lesser means thrown in jail in those days. By 1903, at the age of 60, she was no longer riding along to fires, though she still wore a number 5 pendant to honor her favorite engine company. She was living at the Palace Hotel when a cousin of hers named Alexander Garrett burst into her room with a gun. A visitor named Major McClung ended up dead, possibly because he jumped in front of Lily, who may have been the intended target. Garrett pleaded insanity, but he was convicted of murder. Unscathed that day, Lily Hitchcock Coit lived until 1929. She died at the age of 85. She left a third of her estate to the city to be used for the purpose of adding to the beauty of the city which I have always loved. San Francisco built a monument to firefighters in Washington Square Park, and it built Coit Tower, the top of which coincidentally resembles a fire hose nozzle, though that wasn't the intention of the architects. The social realist murals that decorate the interior, the product of an early New Deal program called the Public Works of Art Project, they were dedicated a year later. At the tower dedication, the old firefighters' hearts raced and their eyes glistened as they gazed at a portrait of the late Mrs. Coit leaning against the rostrum as Mayor Angelo Rossi spoke. We need no monument to remind us of Lily Coit, he said, but it is indeed fitting that the money she left for the purpose of beautifying the city be spent in a memorial to her for her generosity, her bravery, and her love of San Francisco. This has been Not Your Century, a production of the San Francisco Chronicle. Audrey Cooper, Editor-in-Chief. Get great journalism today at sfchronicle.com. I'm King Kaufman. Talk to me on Twitter at King underscore Kaufman. We now return you to your century.